we're going to go ahead and jump into the message today. We're in Ephesians chapter number four, if you want to start turning there. We have been in this series called Letters to the Church, where we are walking through the book of Ephesians, looking to see what the scriptures have to say to us in our life. We need to understand that even though this book was written 2,000 years ago, the words are just as applicable to our life today. The last three weeks, we have been looking at really the gospel message. Chapter one, two, and three is breaking down and dealing with the different aspects of the gospel. And from here on out, Paul is now encouraging us and teaching us and instructing us how to respond to that gospel message. And so I'm very excited as we look at chapter four today. The title of my message is Worthy of the Walk. Worthy of the Walk. Now, I have been well documented from this platform saying that on my bucket list, one of the goals of my life is to hike the Appalachian Trail, which starts in Georgia and goes all the way to Maine. It takes about six months to hike that trail, and I think it would be phenomenal. Now, many of you have asked, why would you want to do such an idiotic thing as live in a tent and walk for six months? And it's because when I was a child, I was 10 years old, and I was in Rolled Rangers, and I got to go on this hike in North Carolina called Godfather Mountain. And as I took this hike through the mountain, and we got to see all the different things, and I was about 10 years old, and I had my buddies there with me, there was something that was stirred inside of me that I wanted to go on adventure. That was probably the coolest adventure that I had, had ever been on in my life at a tenure, as a 10-year-old that sparked something to say, I want to go on this journey. There was a few pivotal things that happened on this journey, this hike at Godfather Mountain that really changed my life. One of them, the, the big things was we were walking along this trail and we came up to this cliff and it just looked like a drop-off, like there was nothing there. And I was scared to death of heights. And so I thought, what are we going to do? When you got to this edge, you were to scoot down onto this, onto this uh, cable and you were to shimmy yourself over to a ladder and go down. Now, as a 10-year-old, scared to death of heights, probably the cliff was, you know, no more than me off the edge of this stage. I don't remember, but it felt like it was forever far down. And so hanging off the side there, shimmying myself over to the ladder, that felt like a grown-up experience, you know what I mean? It, it, it scared me to death, but it, it sparked something that, hey, you can take risk in life and you can see the outcome. And as I think about the scripture that we're about to read in Ephesians chapter number four, when you experience the goodness of God, it just sparks something in your heart to want to start a journey for the Lord because you know there's some risk involved. But there's also some reward when you're following the Lord. There's some, there's some hard things that make you spiritually grow up, which are good for you. There are some things that you get to see when you're following the Lord for your life that you're never going to get to see without him. Ephesians chapter 4, starting verse number 1. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. As you think about that verse, God bless allergy season. How many of you are with me? Like, I think the Lord's trying to punish me or something this year. In fact, I, you, I've been taking like eight daily allergy pills every day. I don't know if that's healthy or not. I just, Charity's like, what are you going to do? Just keep taking them until they start working? I was like, yeah. And so far, the magic number's been eight. I don't know if that's okay or not. I am not kidding on that. So, Doc, don't get mad at me. That sounds bad. We are not recommending that behavior, okay? Do not, you do not want to listen to me for medical advice, okay? I've only had four this morning. That's why I'm a little bit worked up here. <laughs> anyway, that's also a fact, okay? 
Luckily, they're not non-drowsy. I mean, if they were drowsy, I'd be over here asleep on the side, you know. I would have missed the worship and everything. As we dive into chapter 4, we're talking about being worthy of the walk of Christ and following Christ. And what you're going to notice out of chapter 4 is that everything is about action. Being part of a local church, being a Christian means I am a person of action. I'm not stagnant where I'm at. I'm on a move towards something. And chapter 4 is the response to the gospel message. So he's saying, look, if you buy into what I've been telling you about how Jesus came, how he died for your sins, how he rose again, how you can be a new creation, how he has this path locked down for you, then chapter 4 is about how you live it out. And so Paul's encouraging us to respond by starting this journey, by leaving our old life and walking a new life. Now, we need to understand this context, because if we read chapter 4 without understanding it's a response to the gospel message, then you'll read chapter 4 as a list of do's and a list of don'ts. And that's not what the gospel message is about. The, the Bible is not about behavior modification. It's about life application. It's about Christ's application to our life. It's about the calling that we have been called to. And so here's the big idea. You are God's son or daughter, and because of your new identity, you live a certain way and you represent the family name well. I was listening, uh, reading a book, I don't remember exactly which it was, to a Navy SEAL who was going through SEAL training. And as we all know, it's one of the most difficult trainings in the world for the military. And he was talking about how everybody would ring out, they would have to take their helmet off, and they'd have to put it on the steps going into uh, the bunkhouse. And as they would put it there, they would see all these helmets with names on them. And he said the drill instructors would go by and they say, don't disrespect your father's name by quitting and having to leave his name on that, on that step. And as I think about that, we have a new name, a new identity, because Christ has saved us. And just as that man said, I didn't want to disrespect my father's name by making his name be acquitted with quitters, so too we want to represent the heavenly father well. The question then becomes, what are the marks of being worthy of the calling? What are, the, what are these actions, these lifestyles that we're called to? Well, we see some traits through this passage, and we're going to walk through them together today. We're going to walk through this chapter, and we're going to see the traits of someone who is walking worthy of the calling. The first trait we see this, we are called to walk in love that leads to unity. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 say this, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. By grace, uh, but, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led the captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, does it mean that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill, fulfill all things. You have noticed the calling of unity. I feel that. You, you know what? Let me get you a tissue, too. You need one, too. You know what? Listen. I'm not trying to be distracted, but I'm going to grab one, too, while we're here. You know what I mean? I had to go get one anyway, so. If anybody else needs one, just holler. We'll push pause, and we'll get you taken care of, because we're all feeling the pain. Got in the truck the other day. It's just yellow. 
It's, it was white. Now it's just yellow. I'm like, Lord, what are you doing to me? <laughs> That's the weirdest thing I've ever done in a message right there. Take somebody a box of tissues. Good Lord, this is going to be a long morning, ain't it? You, you will notice there is a call to unity. This calling to unity is based upon a love that is rooted in the understanding of the grace of God in our lives. As brothers and sisters, we are to recognize that God died for us, that he, he adopted us into his family. We have, as the scripture just said here, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and that oneness brings us together. And as a result of this new heart given to Christ, a heart that is now surrendered to him, there should be a love that is fostered within us that brings unity to the local church. Now catch this. Unity is not just a good quality of a Christian life. Unity is not a perk. Unity is not an ideal. Unity was a calling, a command, and a requirement of the Christian life. Unity is the distinctiveness of the Christian body from the rest of the world. So we, we can't be decisive or divisive with one another trying to separate the body of Christ because that would be unnatural in the spiritual realm. Let me explain this in a very morbid way, but track with me for just a second. Imagine you're walking through Walmart and you look over and you see someone carrying a severed arm. That's gross. That's morbid. You think, my goodness, there's a problem. And you run over there to that person and you find out that that's their severed arm and they're just walking around carrying it because they don't want to get it fixed. You'd be grossed out. You'd be horrified. It'd be repulsive. It would be a cause of concern. You would think that person is outside of their mind. When believers are at odds with one another and we're unwilling to fix those odds, it's like us cutting off our own arms and then walking around with severed limbs. It is repulsive to the world of unbelievers. They look at it and they say, these people claim to be people of love and yet they're crucifying one another. That's disgusting to me. I don't want any part of that. We have to understand that unity is not a luxury. We fight for unity because of the spirit of Christ inside of us. Unity will never be easy because we're humans. We're not perfect. And as such, we will offend others and we will be offended. We will sin against others and they will sin against us. We will be misunderstood and we will misunderstand. These are all realities of a flawed people coming together. However, because of the love of Christ inside of our lives, we strive for love and we will fight for one another, not against one another. We fight for unity because we're called to unity. We will fight to overcome offenses. We will fight to forgive sins that are committed against us. And we'll fight for clarity with our brothers and sisters. Unity like this can only happen when we're humble towards one another. Verse 2 calls us to be humble towards one another. The church is not a place to make a power move. We don't look at other people and say, how can I use them to get ahead? And rather, we look to them and figure out their own interests, and we put them above our own. That is the foundation of unity. That's the calling of the unity. This calling is a spiritual basis, but it has visible results. Now, here's the thing we have to understand is that we're not a cadre of clones. We are all created uniquely by God. And as such, we need to learn with, to work with each other's uniqueness. A church functions because we're all different. And our differences come together, our different gifts, our different abilities, our different spiritual gifts, our different perspectives, and it brings a more full picture to the work of Christ. 
We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights, looking at spiritual gifts. Your, your gift of hospitality or teaching or leadership or gifts of serving or honoring all help the body function and to be more healthy. There's, there's some of us with natural talents. There's those of us that can do different things. But Christ has put us all together and gifted us with one spirit. It's pretty interesting that he talks about that. Our uniqueness is now brought together and infused together. What that teaches us is none of us are adequate on our own. We need one another. So this calling of unity is an intent to honor Christ. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and I want to address it again. The one thing we have to understand when it comes to unity is that there are going to be times when you're in relationship or church with people whom you don't like. Let's be honest. Don't raise your hand. <coughs> it can get you in trouble. You ever been to church where somebody annoys you? I heard some mm-hmm's. I told you don't. Like, now's not the time to respond, you know? Definitely don't start pointing fingers. You ever been to church with somebody, just their personality's abrasive on your nerves? Some of you have big smiles on right now. The Christian character calls us to overlook our personality differences and to accept one another. We think that we should go to church and like everybody. That's easy. Going to church and fighting for unity when someone maybe annoys you is practicing the calling of unity and love. Second, we're called to mature manhood. Let's read verses 11 through 16. It says this, And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all obtain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried along by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together, every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Raising kids can be taxing on the soul. We talk about this a lot, mainly because it gives me an opportunity to talk, and you guys are my therapist. You know, I get to share with you all the struggles. Bill Cosby talked about how ch all children are brain dead. And if you've ever raised kids, you know they're all brain dead, right? How do we know they're brain dead? Well, you talk to the kid, and you walk in, and you see the kid in there, he's eating Doritos. And he's taking the Doritos, and he's crunching them up into the carpet, and he's sucking them up with a straw. Have your kids ever done something like that? Or is that just in my house, right? And you walk in, you say, why are you doing this? I don't know. You know, so you're like, hey, that's not how we eat Doritos. You know, put them on the plate, eat them one at a time. Don't be crunching them up into the carpet. You have grace, you help them, you put all the stuff back together. You go to the other room, you come back. And what's the kid doing? Crunching the Doritos and putting them back in the carpet, sucking them up the straw. And you're like, I just told you not to do that. Why are you doing that? I don't know. <laughs> you know? Why do kids do that? Because they're brain damaged, right? They don't think clearly. So the goal is to take these brain damaged children and move them into maturity so that they're no longer brain damaged. That's our role as parents. That's what our parents did for us. We too were brain damaged at one point. 
We don't remember that time because we were brain damaged, so we have amnesia for that. But we were just as dumb. And what, the, what, what our parents have done is brought us along, and now we're here. The calling of every believer in Jesus Christ is to grow up into maturity of faith so that we're no longer spiritually brain damaged. Notice verse 11. It says that Christ gave gifts to the church. And what were these gifts? They were people who taught the word of God. The greatest gift that God can give to your life outside of salvation, the Holy Spirit, and your spouse and your children is spiritual teachers and mentors. Someone who can tell you and teach you the word of God. Notice the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. These people are to give you the word to build up your faith and to stir you up. I talked about that hike in the Appalachian Trail earlier. I was on that hike with a World Ranger group. Thank God for those men who took time to say, I want to disciple and I want to build up and I want to pour into boys. Where would I have been? And I was brain damaged and they still submitted themselves to that. But because of their submission and their obedience, here I am. Some of the simplest truths I ever heard about the gospel message I heard in World Rangers. I remember one time my commander came and he had this, this piece of like a old, um, perhaps it was like a Carhartt, you know, um, what I'm trying to say, Carhartt overalls. And he had cut a piece off and he gave us a piece and he gave us a fish hook. And he said, push that fish hook through the, through the fabric. And it was real easy to get that fish hook in there. And he said, now pull it out. And of course you couldn't. And he said, that's what sin is, boys. It goes in really easy. And once it's got its hook in you, it's nearly impossible to pull out. Simple truth. I was seven, eight, nine years old. I still remember that today. And it was true. Thank God that I had people in my life giving me the word of God. The local church was created to help people grow into the maturity of faith. That's part of our journey is to walk. And the aim is the fullness of Christ. Our calling is to maturity as believers. Maturity in Christ means to be properly equipped for the work of the ministry. He says that he gave these fivefold gifts so that we can go out and do the work that God has called us to do. When, the, when you're properly being discipled and the word is being poured into you, it stirs you so you can go out and do the work that God has called you to do. On a football team, on the defense, every p- player is given an assignment. And if you watch football at all, and you know on defense, even if you're not around the ball, you still need to stay on assignment because if you blow your assignment, you're leaving someone uncovered. Spiritually speaking, all of us have been given an assignment. And we need to listen to our coach and our assignment. The calling of maturity looks like unity in the faith and the knowledge of the son. This calling to maturity looks like stability in our doctrine. You'll notice in this passage, he says that people who are mature aren't just thrown around by every wind and wave of crazy doctrine. There's stability because you're standing on the real word of God. You're not, you're not listening to people's ideas or opinions. You're, you're staying close to the scripture. The calling of maturity calls us to, to evaluate our speech. We speak to one another different. Why? Because we're Christ's disciples and we're following him. The calling to maturity is growing into the head of the church, which is Christ. And this energizes us and this changes us. So we're called to maturity. We're called to love that leads to unity. Third, we are called to live a life and a walk of righteousness and holy living. Verses 17 through 24 say this. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord that I must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of the thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from a life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, to practicing every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a new self created in the likeness of God and in true righteousness and holiness. The believer is called to a life that honors Christ through righteousness and holy living. Living holy simply means to live a life that is separated from the pattern of this world and is in line with the image and the honor of Christ. If you honor Christ with the, 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 this holy lifestyle, what this verse says is that you put off the old self and you give up the calloused and darkened heart. Look at what this passage is teaching us. The sin calluses our heart, and as a result, we are in darkness without understanding. We were making fun of the kids a moment ago for being brain damaged, but spiritually speaking, we're all brain damaged because of sin. When a person is not a believer, their hearts are darkened. There's no illumination to the reality of their life. This is why we as believers can never expect unbelievers to live like Christians. It's that they're incapable of it. This is why our governments cannot legislate morality. Why? Because the heart is dark to the truth, and they don't even understand it. A hard heart cannot distinguish between good and evil. The calling of a believer is to allow Christ to illuminate our hearts so we put off the old self with its desires and then desire to follow Christ and Him only in a life of righteousness. One of the most popular songs in all of history is Johnny Cash's I'll Walk the Line. Now, if you ever look the backstory up, is he wrote that song to his wife behind stage. They had just got married. And he's saying, look, because you're mine, I'll walk the line. Yeah. You'll notice that's why I don't sing solos at church. Because of our commitment to Christ, we walk the line. He's freed us from the old life, from the old experiences, and now we live for him. This passage shows us that we are to put off the old self in the old ways because it has no future. There's no reason to continue down the road with the old life because of its futility of thinking. It's going nowhere. It's like getting in the car, trying to turn it on. It won't start, and you just sit there and keep hitting the key over and over and over again. That's stupidity. Why? Because it's never going to start. Something's broken. Going with the old life is like that. As believers, we recognize and we answer the call of this righteous and holy lifestyle. If you want to honor Christ with a righteous and holy lifestyle, you have to be renewed in your thinking. You have to allow the Holy Spirit, according to this passage, to renew and rewire how you process and look at the world and look at life. And then in life, you put on Christ. Now that concept of being Wrapped in Christ's righteousness, putting on Christ's righteousness is very difficult for us to think about. Here's a way I think in which you can think about it. 
You practice the way Christ lived. Let me give you an example. When I was in college, my first day uh, in class was a psychology class because everybody has to take psychology in college. And so it was the very first class. It was like 8 a.m. Monday morning. I'm there. I'm sitting there and um, the, the uh, professor runs in and he's like this. I mean, he's wound up little guy. You know, I mean, he's like this tall. And he's like, everybody stand up. Okay. And so everybody stands up and we're all just kind of looking around, you know, like what's going on. He's like, everybody stick out your arms. So we're all like this. And he said, I want you to bring your arms in. We're all doing this. And he says, now start flapping like a bird. And so we're all doing this. All, you know, we're not big college. There's 50 of us. And we're all flapping like this, looking like idiots, looking around. He says, stop, stop, stop. Sit down, sit down. I said, okay. So we all sat down and he said, why did you do that? And one intelligent person on the front row said, because you told us to. He said, yes. And why did you listen to me? Somebody else said, because you're the professor. And he said, am I? And turned around and walked out of the room. He wasn't even the professor of the class. <laughs> Learn something about psychology real quick. It was effective, okay? Real professor comes in, and he starts to explain throughout the course of the semester that we're visual learners, that we watch other people, and that's how we learn to do most of the things we do. And he used a very simple experiment. He said, who here can juggle? Out of 50 of us, only like two people could juggle. Most of us couldn't juggle at all. And so he brought the two people who could juggle to the front of the room, we were to get in small groups and we were to just sit there and analyze as this person juggled. And so they're sitting there juggling and we're watching and we're watching. And we do that for like 10 minutes. And he said, okay, now you take, you take these tennis balls and you try to juggle and we would pass them around. And you know, the crazy thing is, is by sitting there and watching that person juggle for 10 minutes, most people in the room could rudimentally juggle just a little bit in that time. Why? Because we had processed how to do it how you throw one ball and catch the other one and just sitting there watching them. Here's the reality. When you watch Christ and you practice living like Christ, you start putting on Christ's righteousness. You start looking at the word. You start looking at other believers. You start watching everything play out. You let this start to soak into your heart and you stare intently. Now we were watching them juggle. We couldn't be looking around. We had to stare at them. Our focus was on them. And by watching that pattern, it started to rewire how we understood the concept of juggling. And when you start looking at this and you start watching godly examples around you, you can start to rewire your understanding of what it means to put on Christ. Almost all kids at some point practice being superheroes. They put on the costume and boy, they think they can take on the world. Knox man put on a Spider-Man costume. He think he could crawl on walls. Could he? No, not even a little bit. But what he's doing is he's practicing. A lot of little girls put on their mom's shoes and makeup and jewelry, pretending to be her. Or is she mom? Of course not. But she's starting to resemble her mom a little bit. Why? Because she's putting on the articles that her mom owns. And in a lot of ways, that's how we practice righteousness. That's how we put on righteousness. We put on righteousness because we start living like Christ. We start watching his examples. We're never perfect in that. But as we practice more and we watch him and we allow the Holy Spirit to start to rewire our minds, we start to live like him. We start to resemble him to this world. And then they can see the true Savior through us, who is Jesus Christ. I want to close with this if the worship team wants to come back. We're called to walk in love that leads to unity. We're called to mature manhood. and We're called to live a life of righteousness and holy living. And the results of the gospel message is a changed life. Let me read you the rest of the chapter. It says this, starting in verse 25. 
Therefore, having put away falsehood, let's let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the building up as it fits the occasion that it may be that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The writer is calling us to say yes to God and no to sin. This last chapter, he's, ta- he's called us to this, this journey, this walk. It leads to unity, it leads to maturity, it leads to a righteous lifestyle. And he just starts to hit quick, quick hits. He's saying, if you do these three things, if you walk in unity, that's rooted in love, and you walk in maturity, and you live this holy, righteous lifestyle, then you'll speak the truth in love, and you won't harbor anger towards other people, and, and you'll do honest work, and you'll be generous, and you won't grieve the heart of God, and you won't tear down your brothers and your sisters. This will be the result of that work in your own life sealed with the Holy Spirit. Your family life will be better. Work life will be better. The community in which you live will be better. All those things are a byproduct, but the most important thing that happens when you say yes and you walk in this is that your heart will be better. I told you at the beginning, it's that adventure that starts in life. This walk with Christ is an opportunity to see you do things and God move in your life in ways that you can never see on your own. That's the result of this unity, of this maturity, and of this righteousness that we're talking about. It's a lifestyle where you see the goodness of God.